As a young man, fishing was in Ray Rozier's blood, and decades later, he became one of the greatest bill fishermen to ever fly a kite in South Florida. Having worked as a full-time captain over the last 40 years, and with 30 tournament wins alongside his conservation efforts, he has cemented himself into the upcoming IGFA Captains and Crew Hall of Fame. There is no one more deserving to be receiving this honor, and you'll find out why in this next hour. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow and he turned around the other way and I shot him going through the other way. So I double lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. <laughs> There's something fishy going on here. Ray Rozier, it is such a pleasure and an honor to have you. I mean, mostly we do fly fishing people, and uh, we did uh, Skip Smith, an offshore guy, but, you know, to have you in the podcast is is, is really a treasure. And uh, Thank you. Not only that, you're being inducted into the IGFA Captain and Crew Hall of Fame this year. So yeah, that's pretty cool. What's that mean to you? It means I'm getting old. <laughs> But you did a lot of things well. And let me, let me define what that means. So the Inter International Game Fish Association, they annually recognize captains and guides or crew members who have made extraordinary contributions to recreational angling through innovation, leadership, or outstanding accomplishments in their trade. Hmm. So that's a, that's a huge accomplishment. Oh, thanks. Not many people get in there. Yeah. Tell me a little bit, um, well, let's start with your family. You know, Charmaine was on your boat. She, uh, you worked together for a yeah. long time. Yeah. Tell me about when you first met her. Well, on the water, you know, catching bait and, you know, gave her a couple boats around us and threw the net and got a bunch of bait. And so they were, felt, they were catching bait with Sabiki rigs, yeah. you know, three at a time yeah, or whatever. I hate to admit it, but it was a little bit of just a little sympathy like hey give the, told my threw, mate to give, you, give these guys, poor people threw, some bait you, you threw your cast in and got the whole school <laughs> <laughs> anyways that's where it kind of started and then we ended up uh yeah going on a date and the rest was history and it and it's been a then she was a lawyer and and i thought well that's kind of cool you know she'll have her life and i'll be and i didn't realize how much she worked she worked long hours and that kind of matched my schedule and then uh I don't, I think we were just, we were engaged and I met uh, Kit Toomey, uh, old friend in Miami and he had bought a boat and he called me one day and said, hey, come check my boat out. I, I didn't know, what, you know, anything beyond that. Mm -hmm. Said, I'm with my girlfriend. Oh yeah, we'll bring her over. 
So we're all we checked out the boat, 53 Hatters. I mean, uh, sorry, Viking. And uh, um, uh, he, you know, proposed the idea of us fishing tournaments together, which wasn't really like a uh, something I expected. And we worked at it. I told him, you know, I got charter boat and I would need to be focused on that. And he's like, yeah, well, we can schedule it. And, you know, I said, I think that'll work. And then she pipes up and says, well, if you're going to do that, I want to do it with you. And I looked at her like, I said, that's like a hundred bucks a day, honey. And she's like, that's fine. And just my, my heart sunk. My rich girlfriend just became my poor wife. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I had it made, man. You thought you were marrying up. Yeah, exactly. I think, I don't know. So the funny part was I said to kid, I'm like, are you okay with this? And you know, he didn't like, he didn't help me out. You know, he's like, oh no, that'll be fine. And I'm thinking, God, I just wish he'd say no. <laughs> I hate to admit it, but you know, that's what I was really thinking. <laughs> so and then funny. it just evolved from there and we ended up fishing eight seasons together. And I think we won 13 tournaments together. And those wow. are all just great, great memories. Of course, I got to give a lot of credit to Kit and Peter Miller sure. and uh, John Cooper, Froggy Cooper. I went to high school with him and uh, right here at Gillian High School next to me. And uh, he was a world champion spear fisherman to represent the United States. So he had that mentality of tournament fishing and we all just morphed into a team that was just a dream. It really was mm-hmm. a dream team. And it, we had a lot of fun together and I'm really indebted to those guys and we had so much fun. Well, we'll talk about your tournament success here in a little bit, but when you first walk into your home, you've got deer and antelope, <laughs> or you're, you're big hunters. But let's talk about your, your, your children. I mean, your, your fleet is named after your, your Brittany, mm-hmm. uh, your daughter. Yep. Um, Cheyenne's got uh, a name on one of your boats. Yep, that's in right. Dakota, your son. He's he gets in, a job. He, he's in camo. He's throwing a fly <laughs> rod in the backyard. Uh, family, I can see, really uh, means so much to you. Yeah. Well, you know, hopefully they'll push your wheelchair when you're old. Right. <laughs> Treat them well. Nikki, Nikki, are you, are you listening? Yeah. I'm pushing your wheelchair right off a cliff. <laughs> Keep it up. <laughs> um, oh, man. So let's get back to this award. Um, you know, you're being, a, a, uh, you're getting this award along with uh, Carl Anderson, mm-hmm. Brad Simons, yep. Paul Spencer, yep. and Spencer Boats. Gene uh, Vanderhoek. Yeah. All friends. Tell me about these guys. They're all people I consider friends, and all of them are deserving and just wonderful people. So that's what a, a, you know, a great group to be joining that, that honor with. Right. Really cool. You know, I, uh, we've done a little bit of offshore stuff. Um, During the series Sportsman's Journal that I hosted, uh, we were in St. Thomas, um, with Jim Lambert oh, yeah. on the real tight. Yeah. Um, Eddie Her- Herbert. Herbert was yeah. the captain, I remember. Yeah. Um, and it was just amazing. We caught a real big fish. I caught one on a fly, but wow. the whole dynamics of what happens with that offshore world. Um, yeah, Jim Lambert in the evenings when I fished St. Thomas with Bill Harrison, uh, and Ralph Christensen down in, in uh, he was from Puerto Rico, but when in the evenings we'd go by the dock and they would be in there watching film. So it was like football team, you know, Jim's in there, you know, if we do this on this situation, you know, and it videos from the day of, from the of, day of fish. fish. Yeah. He, he approached it very strategically and intelligently and all of his crew, uh, 
you know, all of us actually, everybody benefited because it just kind of all that knowledge permeates the fleet, you know, not saying he taught everybody, but it, it certainly didn't hurt that there was analysis and, and intelligence applied to the, right. and it was back when pitch baiting just became teasing was really right. telling Tease, on the scene and, and pitch a bait behind the fish. Yeah. Whether you're throwing a fly or a hooked bait, uh, it was really an art and that's what they were. Those were the, those were the problems they were solving. And the best Jim Lambert story was I was there the day it happened. Uh, you know, they got so good at teasing as a team. He said, you know, those things that eat anything, they'd eat a beer can. And Jim liked to drink, drink Miller Lite. So they poked a hole in the bottom and made this the deal up with the hook and they pitched it out there and the blue Marlin ate it. And I've never seen a fish on film jump as many times as that blue Marlin did. With a and, can stuck in its mouth. Right. Didn't you do that as well? I, did that. He, I did that with him too. Yeah. He showed me. Oh, okay. We taped a big old nine-hole hook to a beer can, and we cut this monster. That might have been the same day. We might have been there together. It was crazy. I don't know how many times he did it. I don't know if it was yeah, the same maybe, day. Yeah, maybe it was a trick he did with everybody who got on yeah, it. Yeah, you know, made it seem like it was special. Um, <laughs> did that change the way you guys caught Blue Marlin, the the bait and switch? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's become the technique of choice. And it, what it really did was open the door for world record fishing and and light tackle fishing for blue marlin because you get a little chance to size them up so now you actually can have you know two or three line classes ready and pitch the right rod and of course sometimes you pitch the wrong rod but the bottom line is it, it did it did grow the sport by another notch you mm -hmm. know it, it turned so i remember on the get lit with kit and peter we fished the drambuie tournament in key west and you know i had fished st thomas a fair amount with bill harrison and ralph and um done some teaser fishing here and there. And uh, uh, we decided to try to, you know, have some lighter tackle. Kit and Peter were great anglers. And we, we went to Key West with a rocket launcher, not a fighting chair. And I remember people looking at us like, what, you know, where's your chair kind of deal. Yeah, what's and a rocket launcher for some people? It's just a, may it's not a be post in the center of the cockpit with a table that holds rod. So obviously you can't use it to your advantage fighting a fish on heavy tackle. You don't have a seat to it's attach all stand your harness, up. all stand up. And I'm not saying we originated stand up fishing. I'm just saying that we took that to Key West for a tournament right. in the first 20 minutes. Oh, and I remember getting ready the night before Charmaine was there and the guy next to us made a comment about it, you know, like the Florida fish to where you would get, uh, what's the right word? Uh, prejudices people said all oh, these florida fish you know fish in florida don't tease like they would and i said something about you know hey we catch them in st thomas on teasers and you can get them on light tackle and well you're not in st thomas is kind of how it went and i swear to you the next morning 20 minutes into the day 300 pounder rolls up on the teaser and i hand pulled it we didn't have a setup with all the electric reels i just hand pulled it and peter pitched it ballyhoo chugger boom got him on Caught a 300 pounder on 50 stand up, and it was just, I it's to this day one of my favorite fish because it 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 made us feel good about our approach, and we enjoyed the fish more than if we had a 130 in a chair, you know. Right. Fish jumped a lot, and we just had a great time. Didn't the bait and switch also improve your hookup ratio as well, or is that not true? No, that is true By because when you're trolling lures, you know Ralph Christensen on the Pescador that Bill and I fished with a lot, he would document everything and we were you know it, it, i would say the standard is somewhere between 50 and maybe 70 percent would be a great numbers and pitch baiting you should be much higher so what, what are the numbers in pitch baiting 
I would say you want to hit, hit somewhere 80, 90%. And of course, in any sport where inches count, you know, that one extra fish out of 10 bites in a tournament sometimes wins the tournament. Right. Yeah. So what it is basically, if you don't mind me saying, if you're trolling a hook bait, mm -hmm. they come up and eat it from behind the hooks going away from them. Yep. So the hookup is not that, that very good. Mm -hmm. So when you pitch it behind the fish, you pull the teaser out of the water pop that bait behind him they turn and you get that bite going away going away yeah and even if he misses it on that first going away bite and he comes in behind it if you have a natural bait when they bite on it a lot of times they'll go ahead and ingest that bait and now you've got a chance for a circle hook the corner of the mouth better for the fish long term so yep you know and a lot of times uh fish hooked on a circle hook jump a lot tire themselves out anytime we hooked a fish two weeks ago in miami on the kite on 20 blue marlin at least 200 pounds and the fish it just so happened i was we were in our, an open fisherman and i ran to the bow with the angler and 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 uh one of my other captains got on the wheel so i was with the angler coaching him on finger pressure you know as soon as he he'd give a little or or austin would make a little ground on him we were pulling a little short strokes trying to just really gate everything we could and the fish went down deep and got so much line dragging and eventually broke the leader so you can't you know making a fish jump has added benefits keep him up shallow you right. can retrieve line fish goes down two three four hundred feet you're done you can't chase him on a big fish yeah. yeah well you you started off at a very young age uh you're third generation fisherman out of miami but you're the first commercial a mm -hmm. member of the family yeah. chasing these fish but you were on a 35 bertram sword fishing at 18. Uh, I was actually about 16. It was a 38. Actually, that was a cool cat. That was a 36 incident with Bob Lewis. And Bob was the one that, that kind of pioneered modern kite fishing with, at least in the East Coast. Um, he was, uh, he patented the first kite. So Pompanet made him and so on. Anyways, I my dad bowled with Bob on Thursday nights. It's just, you know, the how, how life goes sometimes. And his son, Jimmy, was my best friend. And, uh, we hung out at the bowling alley together and started fishing together on weekends. And, and I, I, I looked sad long enough that Bill, Bob finally, you know, hired me. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy was always going with his dad and I just sad faced him and he, he let me come. I didn't know anything, but I was about 16 when I, we, our first, I remember it because we caught a sailfish with the boss of the guy on the boat and it, uh, he had the sailfish mount and it said july 10th 1979 so that's that's how i was remembered i'd go in his house and see it wow did you ever did you always want to be a captain ever since a young age i was going to be a plumber. plumber so my dad my dad uh dropped out of 10th grade to be a plumber and ended up being a you know went to the military and became a cb which is you know construction battalion and it was just in his blood that's what he wanted to do and he, he was a plumbing contractor for 50 years I was his only son and so you know as soon as i could move a shovel 12 years old i was summers with him and that's and that that's probably what made me want to be a fisherman <laughs> <laughs> so i actually went to college for five years studying construction management and uh but i was fishing five days a week and went to school on tuesday thursdays that's why it took a while right and long story short i um when i was done by then i had kind of elevated to the la you know, to a captain's position. And I had that tough conversation with my dad that this is what I want to do. And thank goodness he, he, he really was kind to me and gave me his blessing and the rest was history. That's cool. You just finished a tournament over the last th three mm -hmm. days or so. How'd that work out for you? 
four for six, no, six for eight. And uh, never can get, you know, sail fishing is a lot about numbers. And the guy who won had a six bagger and caught five out of it. And, you know, great fisherman. I fished with him before and uh, JC. And uh, just we didn't get the multiples. Right. A bunch of singles. So I can't double. imagine you call it a six bagger. So you've got how, uh, how many baits in the seven. water? Seven. You got seven baits yeah. and you catch six fish yeah. on that one short period yeah. of time. Yeah. What's it like to see six fish under six or six hooks or whatever? Yeah. I've had six on. Never caught six. I've caught five out of a six, you know, bagger. But uh, a couple of my crew have caught six at a time. And it's just, uh, you know, it's all, I, I just call it this way. Tips together. Just get all your tips together because it's, you know, it's this. They're all crossed. And if you separate, that twist goes down the line and eventually. The angles get tight. And you'll burn them off. Oh, interesting. So it's all about tips together. That's what wins. Interesting. That's what wins a multiple. So you're standing side by side, all the anglers are standing yeah, side by side. How, how tight are the tips of the rods? I'm talking an inch. I want them an inch all, away. All six rods are this close. close. If they're a threat. Now, obviously, if one's over here and one's over there, you're you fine. You separate, yeah. But any time you get lines anywhere near each other, so it's not six rods at one time, but it's you know multiple rods, you want them. I can't tell you how many times. I had three fish one time that we basically grabbed three liters at once. They just swam side by side. So you got, and you know, when they change position, you better respond. And it's not a big deal if they change position and the angles all stayed and you were just gently rubbing, mm -hmm. but it's when they go opposite direction, something's got to give. So that's the ticket is keeping your, it's tangle management. I was watching a video of you uh, this morning, actually. I got up really early. We've been on the road for you know, this whole last week doing podcasts mm -hmm. all over the state. Mm -hmm. um, but I'd never seen... You in action. I, th I thought this morning I got up at like 5.30. I said, I want to see Ray in action. There's a little video of you on YouTube. And you get, I mean, it's daunting to me. I mean, it's just like, oh, my God. I mean, it's just scary to see all these rods <laughs> all lined up under three kites. Yeah, we had 17 baits is the most I've fished, but some guys have fished more. That's You've had a, 17 baits in the water. Yeah, most. it's when you're meat fishing. So they have these tournaments where it's dolphin, kingfish, wahoo, tuna, cobia. So you're going to fly, some guys, I've never done it, fly five kites. Two heavily leaded way out here. Now, of course, you need the right wind. You need that 12 to 15 knots of wind. Five kites. So two this way, then two with less lead, and then one down the middle. You can have three baits per kite. Actually, you can have more. I figured, I just figured out a way to put six baits on a kite. But, um, and I'm, I'm probably going to do it. Oh, my gosh. How hard is it to uh, evolve to be able to effectively fish that many baits and kites well the big thing to remember with kites is start out with one bait one kite and that, that's you and me you're... nick yeah. that's what we did <laughs> one bait, one kite. we, we did. get we get seasick in 30 minutes and we're golfing in an hour and a half <laughs> no we, you're good we always we always say the goggle eyes in our live well are the luckiest goggle eyes in the world <laughs> yeah because we'll just let them because off on the dock we, and we're coming back in we go offshore for 45 minutes and we look at each other and see who gets green first. And then we run back to the dock and let all these goggle eyes swim away from the, at the dock. <laughs> we are the worst. <laughs> I need to give you a bait pen. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, but how, that's a good question. I mean, brings up a good question. How important is bait and good, healthy bait? Uh, it's, the, it's the ultimate it's everything. part of, of what we do, yeah. So we even season the baits, you know, try to get them to eat. And it takes, so... When a bait is caught, it has thin slime in nature. And 
when you bring it into, when you say an ocean going bait, like a goggle eye and bring it into, you know, an estuary or bay, you know, a lot of things can, can cause it to get infection. So the, the slime on a, on a goggle eye is very much like your physical skin to give you a comparison. If you, you know, take away a piece of your skin, you're going to develop a scab. Same thing happens with a bait when you take away a slime. So slime management is real important to get them. Use a wire D hooker. Don't touch the bait. The baits we're going to use for a tournament, if they hit the deck, they they go overboard. We don't use them. Amazing. So, so you, you have never to preserve. touch the bait. That's it. But what happens in a pen if they rub against the side of the pen or something well, like that? We even built nets with clear vinyl bottoms so they hold water, so they don't even get dry. That's for when they're fresh and that slime coat's thin. But once they're in captivity, it takes anywhere from three to five days typically before they'll eat some real choice food like eggs or roe. So, you know, krill. Uh, those are those two things are probably the most edible or most palatable things for the bait or attractive things. And then once you get them eating, now they're calming down, they're eating. And what happens next is their slime coat thickens. When you hold a fresh goggle eye, if I catch a goggle eye this morning and I hold them like this, he won't go anywhere. In other words, his slime coat's so thin, I can grip his skin, his physical skin. But once he's been in the pen for two weeks, I have to grab him like this, where his nose is cradled between these two fingers, or else he'll shoot out of my hand like a grape seed or a orange mm. seed. You know what I mean? So the slime, slime is so much thicker and, and healthy. That's their, there's, that's their um, what's the right word? That's their uh, uh, the way they combat uh, bacteria and infection. Right. So that slime coat gets built and then now they're called season i mean they were doing this in california decades ago the season baits they had the big uh bait handlers uh out there the big barge and yeah, yeah I've seen that. those are season baits and it took a while before you know we caught on to it here but that's kind of what spawned the tackle business you know a lot of what we do is build things for catching the bait pinning the bait seasoning the bait feeding the bait and then hook now you know a lot of tackle tackle for fishing so that slime coat does that necessarily mean that the the bait's going to have more energy or is that just longevity of the bait both both so you take a fresh bait you bought this morning that someone caught at daylight and it might kick real hard for 20 30 minutes on the kite take a season bait and literally 45 minutes or an hour later it's just got energy stores it's no different than a bye week in football right they just rest right eat get stronger you know, let their bodies regenerate. And that's what pen bait is or season. Does bait. the same go for ballyhoo? Ballyhoo are actually a funny fish. A lot of people used to say when I was young, ballyhoo are so fragile and this and that. Well, they netted them. So a net is very much just like sandpaper to fish. So if I net pilchards or net ballyhoo and put them in a pen, two, two to three days, they're dead, if not sooner. So a lot of people misunderstood ballyhoo to think they were super fragile. But if you'll hook and line them, which we do now on sabikis, they're actually one of the most durable. Hmm. But I've never kept them to season. That's kind of an interesting question. I think they would only get better and stronger. But they they live well in a pen. And I remember... Interesting. So here's a funny little thing. Skip Smith one time uh, teased me because we built... When I was <clears throat> early years, commercial bait fishing and building tackle to bait fish. And, and uh, we'd build a bait pen out of PVC. Well, of course, we didn't have the ovens to make the hoops and this and that. We just squared them off and what we found was once they got in that square and maybe a few of them died off the ones that are in there it's like snook right they just swim a circle you know inside of they'll sit still they're pretty calm baits and uh so we built some bait pens that were round and oval and then we built some square ones and i was 
I was at a little tackle thing one day and Skip Smith walked up to me. I had a square bait pen there and he said, he just lit into me. He's like, what in the world is that? Like he, he's such a good fisherman and such a right. smart guy. You know, he knew how to push my buttons. He was challenging me on my intelligence. He was just like, what in the world? No, no bait ever lives in there. You know, I should have caught on. He's a, He's a, got a great sense of humor. And he just got me all worked up. And I started on my little... And he didn't tell you. He, he, he didn't. Oh, he was ready. So he got me going. And I got to get ready for my little seminar on bait and this and that. And finally, he let me go a little bit. And finally, he goes, he's going to settle down here. Let me show you this. You're going to need this. He was like, <laughs> he was coaching me. So Chris Fisher, uh, great white shark, O-Search, you know, good friend. He had sent Skip a picture of three 60 pound yellow fins in a square ballast tank on his research vessel. So 10 foot by 10 foot ballast tank. They put three 60 pound yellow fins and they were just swimming happy as could be in that circle. He goes, I'm going to forward this video to you because you're going to need it because you got some arguments to win. <laughs> so my point is dead baits would go a ballyhoo back to your question about ballyhoo. If you put netted baits in a square pen, they'll get in the corner because they're just, they're just, just, disoriented right get in a corner and now they're it's pushing a, it's a dead end no water flow they die and so people would misunderstand that to say oh that square bait pen built killed them square bait pens don't kill bait poor handling etc you know hit the deck so mm. anyways that's my little dissertation right. bait. how many baits do you have in a pen right now that you're raising um me none because we have something it's kind of interesting you brought that up my whole life i pen baits and in our marinas uh in the last five years four years we've gotten something called the spins and it's only happening really in ocean reef for the most part ocean reef some miami marinas and now it's starting to grow a guy from fort lauderdale called me two days ago 70 dozen goggle eyes he's like hey tell me about this spinning bait thing and the baits will just start spinning circles in the pen and the reason I, I think it's worth talking about is i really believe this is something worth investigating and i've mentioned it to biologists and scientists and nobody has really made any headway with it but i worry because if it's doing that to what is a seasoned bait which in my opinion is a stronger Strongest. bait than a than a native bait or natural bait in the wild if it can do that to that what is what is it doing to a jacks and the snook and the snappers I was at a, this tournament. I pulled up to get fuel up in uh, Hillsborough Inlet. And uh, they said that they started seeing it. And the guy, there was an old timer there that I was talking to. And he said, you know what was funny? When our baits were spinning, there were no catfish around the marina and no snappers. Uh, who knows if they died or they just left. So not trying to get off on a tangent. Bad but, water. But this, well, it's not just oxygen. So there's a, a guy that that makes bait food down in the Keys. And he was seemed to be the most um, uh, knowledgeable about it. He had a dissertation on it, but I don't know the solution. He said, one of the things he says, you take a spinning bait, you cut his tail. If the blood is brown, he's got it. And it was something to do with their brain. And I mean, I hate to, that I'm not more versed on it, but there's something going on. And then, and by the way, Ocean Reef is right there on the Hawks Channel. You'd th you know, you, water. you would think that it would be up the Miami River or the sure. New River or somewhere that was maybe populated. Yeah, and, and maybe it had runoff issues, it had fertilizer issues, it had oxygen level issues. And it may be, I think I remember him saying something about oxygen, but there was something in, in I don't want to say it because I'll say it wrong. 
but there was something going on in the, in the seafloor, in the mud. And mud gets stirred up and it causes this problem. Don't quote me on that. But the point is, there is something going on in the last four or five years that is alarming to me. And I, and I really would like to, that's something I'm going to dedicate some effort to. And my kids are interested in marine biology to a degree. And that's the next, next task. My son's working on a lobster thing and my daughter's working on something else but we'll get to that well i want them to research and i want to be a part of that would you uh contact the fwc or somebody like that yeah. to say hey this I've is talked, a red flag yeah i've talked have. to them i've talked to many people about it but no one seems to know the answer and you know there's so many things that they're that on the radar i think this is such a mysterious thing that i don't see uh anybody grabbing the ball and running with it and I, I, I plan to do more research into that. It's something that really bothers me. Like, um, uh, there, I've heard that it happened a little bit down in the Middle Keys, too. You know, if something like that takes healthy fish and makes them... Here's what's weird. They'll be swimming in the bait pen, and they're all looking great. You dip them up, and you put them in your live well, and they all just start spinning circles. Immediately. Immediately. It's like you pushed them over the brink. And they die shortly And they thereafter. die within an hour, typically. And this is not just goggles. This is ballyhooed, pilchards. Pilchards are the least affected by it, which is, again, you know, interesting to research, right? Huh. Why doesn't it hit the pilchards mm -hmm. as much as it does a goggle? Smooth skin baits, like goggles and cigar minnows. So in our marina, normally I'd have multiple pens full of all kinds of stuff, and I cannot keep bait in my marina. And that's Dinner Key, Coconut Grove. Um, just to tell you how bad it is, they have the years ago, they had the Jimmy Johnson tournament in ocean reef that was the home base this is only like three or four years ago and it was so bad there's like a hundred boats in it so all these boats come into that marina and literally almost every bait either died or was dying and they had this boats were going to coral gables lower you know key largo and other places they had to go recatch their bait or buy more bait i'm talking it was an it was pandemonium i mean here's the biggest the super bowl of all this sailfish tournaments that year you know the most money involved in in the in one event most boats in the whole marina had a bait issue and that's why it's kind of shocking i mean the guys put bubblers and oxygenators and this and that nobody has solved it to this day we're still talking about it with guys from ocean reef and in crandon mm. marina another one that's you know close right to, there close to the shore right it's happening in Crane and Marina. Quentin Dieterle on the cutting edge. I heard that he just lost a bunch of bait last week. So we keep thinking, well, maybe it'll go away. And then right, the next right, year, right. we'll get a little hope up. Oh, our baits are doing good. And then month two or month three, boom, it hits again. I, I, I mean, I don't want to dominate the conversation about this, but it is something that's on my radar and I'm going to look into it. But did, I, I can't raise did bait. Did that affect the tournament last week? Yeah, everybody's got to be real creative. I bought my bait, but I fortunately bought bait from guys that are crewmen that know how to handle them. So they right. did the same thing that I would have done and, I, and I've been very happy. So it's like you almost had bait daily that had just been caught. In our charter boats, that's what we're doing now. You're, you're it, not trying to catch them. Uh, we catch some out in the open and use them that day. That right? day, you can't pin them. So what we've noticed on our boats, we have three boats in, in, in uh, Dinner Key, I mean, uh, Coconut Grove and uh, we keep them in our live well with the pump running. Why that matters, I have no idea. It might be more oxygenation in your boat. In our boat, so from one. But fortunately, we run a lot of you know sequential days, so it's not that big a deal. Or if I have 
only one boat fishing the next day will take the bait off the other two boats and put in that boat. And that's what we're doing to have that bait live till the next day. Mm. Now all the other rules still apply handling. You know, if you use a bait, hook it on and bring it back in, that bait will not under any circumstances make it and be in any shape. So we just let our baits go after we use them. Right. What about the fishery in Miami as a whole? Decent. Decent. Yeah, we've had a good year this year, actually. Yesterday, one boat caught 10 sails in the tournament and 15 won it, two-day tournament. And that all happened in Miami. And interestingly enough, it was a multi-inlet tournament, Lake Worth Inlet, Hillsboro, and, and Government Cut. The first, I, I based out of Hillsboro so I could go either way. And uh, the first day I went up to Lake Worth, up to Palm Beach, and we caught two out of three. And the daily was one with eight in Miami. So yesterday we burned it down to Miami and uh, one boat caught 10. We, we had five bites. So, I mean, what I'm getting at is this year, not that you can base the whole year on that weekend, sure. but this year it's been like that. Palm Beach has not had the biggest days. And some, my three, actually four biggest numbers in my life happened in Palm Beach. So I'm very partial to Palm Beach. I've had two 50 bite days there. So what? So how does that work? Why? Why will all of a sudden one area not have fish when they're basically come down the Gulf Stream? They go in and out as they come. I down? I think they're driven by food more than any other thing. You know, breeding is another issue, but I don't think we're you know breeding season for sailfish typically from what I've seen is in the spring, and we're not there. So in the winter time, in early spring, we're it's all driven by food, which of course is driven by water. Mm-hmm whether it's you know oceanic blue warm water or green you know south current those are all different bring different mixtures of of food available and uh this year the keys have the, the middle keys have been the hot spot so uh Mar- have, marathon area yeah marathon area so we have a, f- a roughly five month tournament called the sailfish cup and you get to pick your days and one boat is leading it with 55 in two days you 55 sailfish in two days. Yeah. Caught, uh, yeah, no, 54, I think it is. Mm -hmm. But anyways, they had a 30 something day and a 20 something day. Yeah. Do you have a problem with sharks when you're sail fishing? That was, I was on the, about to come out of my mouth. That's the next challenge I see for the sailfish population. Uh, you're losing sailfish to sharks. So I've sat on the, some federal boards, you know, uh, the, South, uh, we, we have federal and state management, right? And I've been a part of the, the Dolphin Wahoo Advisory Panel for over 10 years. And we, we would get involved in a few other, you know, discussions with other members of different boards and panels and, and enough to understand what's changing. And what really changed is they've passed some laws now that have banned uh, prohibited sale of, of shark fins. And they've gone from what I believe was 22 shark permits from North Carolina to Key West down to two. And I believe those guys are on the verge of not even doing it anymore because they can't sell the fence, so it's not profitable. So what you've done is you've taken an apex predator. I, I get it that there you need to protect shark, sharks in certain areas, but a lot of the people that are behind the management aren't in the field seeing it, and they're not listening to the people and many times not listening to the people in the field but what i've seen in the last three years of my life is stunning the amount of shark attacks there are on the water i you know it's interesting with, never seen uh, it before in my life we, i had dinner with chris trossett in the lower keys uh when went in november mm-hmm. i said how many fish do you lose to sharks on a daily basis 
mm-hmm. regardless of what you're fishing for. He said 50%. That's crazy. And I feel, I feel like, okay, with such an imbalance, I would feel guilty being in an industry oh, I've, I've, where I'm hooking fish, uh, sport fish, mm-hmm. and sharks are killing them. Yeah. So we're out there killing fish. Yeah, I mean, the the double-edged sword is I, I hope that it doesn't impact sport fishing, right? Because I don't, unfortunately, this is some people livelihood. can misconstrue it and say the sport fishing is a problem. Well, it was never a problem for decades before now. Mm-hmm. The, the problem is uh, an imbalanced harvest. And I'm not talking about killing the last buffalo. That, I'm not endorsing that at all. We want balanced harvest. By the way, we eat bull shark. I've eaten it many times. If you'll, if you kill the fish quickly, dispatch it, bang stick, you can bleed them. There's things you can do to get, get, you know, they're in my opinion, humane. And then you bring that fish in the boat and gut them, cut the head off, gut them. And there's a pocket of blood against the spine. You cut both sides of that pocket and you scrape it out. It's kind of a congealed blood. Mm -hmm. You get that out of there and you put them in a slush of salt water and ice. When I clean that meat, it has zero shark odor and the meat is good. It's pure white. It's, 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 I'm not going to say it's grouper, mm-hmm. but it ain't bad. Right. You fry it up. It's very good. My point in telling you that is it, we're not talking about trying to eat a, figure out a way to eat a tarpon. We're talking about a fish that is edible and they've kind of overpopulated. They've, that what they've really done is criminalized the act of killing a shark. Yeah. And it's but, not, it, we're not talking about, an underpopulated species that's the point right it's not endangered for over 40 years i never had a sailfish bit and in the last couple of years i've had many sailfish bit what's the per, like like one out of three outings oh uh, no no it's not, not that for much. me that's not that much but it is regional so like in right. the palm beach area where they're diving and feeding the sharks and i and i i think a lot of people like to attack the shark divers as the problem i'm not saying that they're the problem but it's certainly I think helps the, my point is I'm not saying there isn't a way to dive with sharks and enjoy the sharks and, right. and possibly even feed the sharks. I don't know about that. I'm, I don't know enough about it to comment because I've never done it. But I can tell you that when you stop a boat in Palm Beach area today, many times on my recorder, I watch it and here's the shark and I look over the side and there they are just swimming under the boat. Yeah, and it's like you've trained them. Yeah. But also, too, in Isla Mirada, you go off to the reef and they hear that boat come and they know that's the, that's the, that's, that's the food. Pen. That's why I said I don't want to punish the shark divers. You know, there's a lot of discussion about everywhere. That. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I don't think it's I don't think they're the main problem, but it isn't helping the feed. The feeding part is not helping the issue. Right. The the you would never be allowed to go to Yellowstone and feed a bear. You know, it's just not that's a that's just not looked at as safe right right? and 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 i'm not and i'm not i'm not here to attack that group that's not my goal but what i am saying is there are more sharks here than i've ever seen and they've become for some reason not just here i mean do you realize in the hatteras area they're eating the tunas 50 miles offshore 50 miles offshore the norfolk canyon in new england is having tunas eaten left and right that never happened Gulf of Mexico, it's happening. The Keys, it's really happening. And I don't know, I mean, I hate to just talk about two bad subjects in a row, but that's, right. that's those are the things that keep me up at night. And I think I lay in bed and think, you know, what, what can be done and what's fair and what's right. Um, 
the reason I mentioned about eating a bull shark is the two sharks. I had a long conversation with Guy Harvey about six months ago. We've been friends since I was a very young man. We, we fished next to each other in Walker's Cay, and he's an amazing person. So we have this long-term respect for each other. And I waited till no one was around because I didn't want to have this conversation in public with him. And I gave him my dissertation on the sharks. And what he didn't realize is I wasn't talking about black tips and hammerheads and all these other species. It's sandbars and bulls. Those are the two that are causing the problem. And those are the two that were targeted by the longliners the most. A lot of people like to attack longlining. And I, and I agree that longlining is indiscriminate more so than other sure. forms of fishing. But when you talk about shark longlining, uh, if they're tending, the, what, what, what makes a longline a little indiscriminate is when it soaks for 12 hours well, that, you know, or eight hours or six hours. It, it, it soaks long enough that that fish can die of fatigue. But a shark longline goes out and comes back pretty quick. And, and again, you have observers. We have the greenest commercial fishing fleet in the world, I believe. Circle hooks, mandated closure areas. There's a lot of things we do right. right. And I believe there is a way to longline sharks ethically and without loss of unwanted, of, of uh, the population. population that, in other words, you can control it very easily sure. in terms of how many permits you give out, what is the closed seasons, et cetera. We have that means. And I really think that's what needs to happen. Unfortunately, Congress just passed a law that banned the sale of shark fins in the United States, if I'm not mistaken. That's how I understood it. How did Guy Harvey feel about this? Oh, this yeah, I'm sorry concept. I got off on a tangent. But when, after I had the 45-minute conversation with him, he seemed to change his, his opinion because bulls and, dusky, um, bulls and sandbars are edible, they're marketable, and the, the fins are important if they're, I mean there's gotta be a way to sell them legally and identify them as legal. You know, there's a ratio of weight of fin to weight of meat. In right. other words, you can't cut the fins off and let the meat right. go. So my point is, this, it's a fixable problem and I wish we could find a way to reduce the numbers of those, you know, bulls and sure. sandbars. And that's that's really it in a nutshell. How do you feel about Mark the Shark who goes out there and, and targets thousand pound, you know, hammerheads and. 500 pound bull sharks and then hangs him high coming back in government cut yeah well you know he's obviously made a career of being uh watched and talked about you know all press is good press for him and i you know i used to be a little more upset with him and now i i, I like him a little more because he's you helping us him. out with the sharks. <laughs> right but yeah. he's a character and i hate to i hate to generalize that that's the average charter boat he's a he has a niche and he does a good job at it but that's not the average, you know, personality yeah. of the, the normal, yeah. um, you know, charter guy that I think is a long term. I mean, he is a wonderful uh, long term, hard fishing, hard working guy, but he, he's sensational. Right. The best the guys that I have spent most of my life around are very low key, like Bill Harrison, you know, Bob Lewis. A lot of guys that have just done amazing things and you, you don't hear, you know, you don't hear very much about them. Let's talk about Peter Wright. Yeah. You know, one of the greatest offshore captains in the world. I think he's got more granders than anyone. He's 77. In, he's in the Hall of Fame. 77,000 pound fish. Documented that weighed, not the ones he let go. And you, you fished with him? You fished yeah. on his boat in Australia? Tell yeah. me a little bit about Peter. And he just died, unfortunately. Yeah, you know, I was just going to say, you know, God rest in peace. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I got the, had the privilege of filming a show with him, a Super Million, years ago. And uh, we just, you know, had a great great trip and and 
just kind of bonded, you know. And for years after that, we talked a lot. And one day I got the magical phone call that he had to go leave his the Sea Baby Four in the middle of his heavy tackle season in Australia and, and go get inducted in the Hall of Fame. And he tried to get out of it and they wouldn't let him in. Hmm. And uh, he said, if you've got somebody that you think might might you know be able to come over and fish and you could run the boat i'll coach you for a week and then you know we'll fish that person together and then you can take over and i did it and it was just the most i can't i get choked up thinking about it he was amazing i rode the tower with him go it was his uh 42nd year he made it 44 and uh the things he shared man i said to him many times God, I wish I was recording this. But he's gone and he gave us great gifts. So, what magic. Of, yeah. What kind of things was he telling you? Just the stories. He he still holds the Australian record, I think, 1442. And uh, <laughs> I think it still upsets the Aussies. <laughs> you know, an American catching yeah, another big fish. Yeah. He probably loved it. He loved it. If you I, knew Peter. He loved that. Yeah. You know? He was pretty uh, hard-headed and uh, controversial in a lot yeah. of ways. He was not an easy guy to be around. You know, he was it's extremely it. smart. And I'll never forget, uh, he showed me some notes he made of line drag versus related to length, you know, distance and speed. He said, oh, I was, you know, 10 knot and somewhere, you know, across an ocean. And he said, I decided to do some tests. And he would take, let's just say, 12-pound test, 20, 30, 50, 80, 130. And he'd let them out at five knots. He'd put them all out. And he could put a scale on the rod, right, or a mark on the line or what, however he did right. it. But he measured the amount of resistance. And then he would bump it up to 10 knots, and he'd measure it. So he had a scale it. on every rod. Yeah, he figured out a way. I don't know if it was a whip-to-floss mark on it, whatever he did. But he would measure it out, arm length, and, okay, it's 200 feet, 300 feet, 400 feet, 500 feet, and he went on. And his graph was just astounding what resistance there was. And he says, and by the way, this is a straight pull. He said the only way to measure a curved pull would be like put a bucket or an anchor, a tie line to a marker, and drive a circle around it. Make you know, turn. he was that guy that would just right. analyze all this. So he... He was a big fan of finger pressure because obviously when that fish is running and he's, it's with the blue Marlin story I told a little bit ago that, you know, once, once they get ahead of steam and they're deep and that you just get another hundred yards out and another hundred, another hundred. I was thinking about Peter while we were pulling on that fish. I'm like getting too much line out on this thing. And that's, you know, that's why I'm a big fan of a short top, top shot of mono in the rest braid. Less drag mm -hmm. when they make a turn. Yeah. So anyways, that was just an example of the things that Peter analyzed and, uh, you know, just a lot of people didn't like him because he was so, you know, I, 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 I hate to use the word abrasive, but he liked, put it this way, he was confident. And when he knew something to be fact, he fought for it. He was it. almost like Skip Smith in that baiting you into an argument or yeah, a yeah, debate. Yeah. Or, you want because he knew yeah, the answer. He knew the answer, right? <laughs> that's cool. And that's how you measured his intelligence most of the time. You know, I'm not saying he was never wrong, but he was usually right. And you what know. was the most important thing that he taught you about catching big marlin, if there was one? Well, his big thing was don't let him get a lot of line out. His, his, you know, that's one of the big things he preached in the tower. You know, 
So, so, cha- so chase them down. Don't let them get away. Down and don't. And if they do get a bunch of line out, which is inevitable on a big fish, turn and run. And chase them down with, with the bow. Yep. Not backwards. Yep. Boat. You know his his line was boats pointy on one end, square on the other. You figure it out. You know that's the kind yeah. of stuff he would say. And of course, that's what bonded us when we filmed that show together. Is I run single engine charter boats, so there is not much backing down in my world. So that was what kind of got him excited is hooking multiples of sailfish. And, and, and the other thing is you kind of learn the behaviors of the fish. Most of the sailfish we catch here in, on the East coast of Florida, most of them like to go offshore or South. So it's usually a Southeast thing. And if you, depending on the wind direction, a lot of times we have East wind. So as soon as we hook up, that fish starts going South and East. Well, we, I actually, a lot of times he bites on the right kite. I'll lift the kite baits on the left up and let him get under. I'll even back up to facilitate that. And now I got him broken out of my spread and now I can just lay the bow over. So you lift the kite up to get the baits out of the, the water. The baits to on the kite. Yeah. And clean it. That's what the kites give you is that ability to, to man- manipulate all your baits to your advantage. If that's where teamwork comes in mm-hmm. and anyways, get the fish ahead of you. And now you can putz after them nice and easy. Angler's gaining. You're still fishing. Boom. There's another one. Oh, mm-hmm. there's another one. And that's what, that's what really excited Pete was seeing that you could still focus on fishing while you're fighting a fish. You know, it'd be like being able to catch two or three tarpon at once. You know, it's just a, it's a rare opportunity that kites give you. Mm, right. Anyways, that was, Pete was real big on cut, keeping the distance short. And also he, he talked a lot about uh, big Marlin. A lot of times before they figure everything out, you can get the leader. And it is, I just went to his memorial two nights ago at the IGFA and, and, uh, one of them talked, one of the guys talked about catching a, you know, a grander in like, you know, whatever it was, three minutes or something like that. I'm sure there was a lot of white water involved, but you know, that's white water involved coming over the back transom. Oh, gaffs pulling boats. Right. I mean, a fish of that size. He told us, uh, Charles Perry, who's just an amazing legendary, uh, captain inmate. And, uh, Told a story about he and Peter Wright's brother, Gaffin, a blue marlin uh, that was taking him to the reef and they got just outside the reef and they, you know, the fish went inshore instead of offshore and they gaffed him. And uh, Peter came down to help and they're getting everything and the fish is, he's scissored on the gaffs and he's kind of pointing away and his tail's going and tails. And he, they said, we heard all kinds of noises, but didn't quite know what was going on. And they got him finally subdued and turned into the boat. And he, Peter went to put it in gear and the, the rudders had gotten knocked loose and into the propellers and bent his propellers. He's drifting up on the reef and one of the other boats came and got him and threw a rope and pulled him off and oh. took him to the mothership. And, and, uh, you know, the, the bottom line is, uh, he was aggressive and he, he, I mean, here's the deal. Never leave the wheel. Yeah. And he, <laughs> he, 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 uh, I don't think there'll be a human on earth that'll ever do what he did. 77 granders. Peter Bristow, if I'm not mistaken, I fished with him also, and I was with him two nights ago at the memorial. I think he's weighed 55. But both of those guys, according to Bristow, he spoke and he said, you know, I started the same year Peter did in 1968 in, in Australia. So you look at that history in those years. And back then, of course, killing a fish was not as taboo as it is today. And... Uh, a lot of people went there to catch their thousand pounder. That was like climbing Everest. Mm-hmm. And and the bottom line is that era is gone. So when I fished with those guys, I asked both of them the same question. 
how many do you think you released that were over a thousand that you did not kill? And both of them told me the exact same answer, which was double. So that would mean that Peter Wright's probably caught close to 200 granders and Peter Bristow's about 150. And that just blows my mind in that I've never caught one. And I've, I've seen a few that I think were real close to the mark, but uh, in one incredible. or two that I'm sure were over, but you know, something always went wrong. You know, we had them on, had them off, you know, they're gone. Right. And you, you just, uh, man, you just, it's just staggering to think of what How they many? accomplished. Let's just say there's a big ocean, obviously, you know, fishing the Great Barrier Reef. Mm -hmm. How does one guy like Peter Wright catch so many more than the others? What uh, is it as a captain? And you know this answer. What do you see out there that other guys don't? Well, what really happened in that world of grander fishing is uh, they acted on Peter Bristow and Peter Wright and Lori Wright and a bunch of guys that, that have done it, Brazaco. They they capitalized on an opportunity when it was revealed to them and all that was lacking was was uh, intelligence and strategy. And, and it's a little bit of a timing thing, right? The sure. development of the boats, the development of tackle, and let's not forget the development of monofilament and braid, you know, Dacron over, over linen line. Because remember, linen line was you know, in the Zane Gray Hemingway sure. days. So it had, it, it was a, it was a compilation of many things coming together that needed to happen for those feats to occur. And then you had to have guys that literally dedicated every ounce of their life and souls and time. And unfortunately family life most times went away because of their focus and dedication. These guys were driven like no other. And that became their life. And, you got to give them credit for that. I mean, whether it was the right decision or wrong decision for, you know, other people that other people wouldn't do it or couldn't do it. They did it. That's what made them who they That's are. That's what made them who they are. And it was all about timing and the alignment of, of opportunity technology. Remember, you know, when I started fishing with Bob Lewis, it was all finger ranges and Loran A, Loran C, you know, Ralph Delph was another, just an amazing human being and all those, you know, guys, down there that, that, you know, uh, uh, it, you know, these guys that made something out of nothing, right. They figured out ways to, you know, find spots and to make the, you know, to make the, the opportunities happen for world records and so on. It's just a, you know, they said it, it came up a couple of times at, at Peter Wright's memorial that, you know, we live during the right time. And those times have, have most of those old guys that got up there to talk said, you know, so happy I saw it. And I know, unfortunately, this next generation won't get to see what we saw. And that's true. It's mm -hmm. no different than conquering the, the West and the United States, you know, the settlers sure. and Indians before them. I mean, you know, the world is about timing. So I have a question. When you're fishing like Jupiter or Palm Beach or Hillsboro, when you go out there in the open ocean, because we're flats guys, we don't we don't know anything about offshore. Do you have specific spots or are you looking for water temperature or current breaks or all the above? Or is there, mm. do you have marked spots where well, also, fish might... Well, also, too, in conjunction with that, what about side scan? Mm -hmm. Seeing fish under the water and you can mm -hmm. move your boat yeah. because there's a fish over there. Oh, yeah. I because, guess... you, because your eyes are underwater mm -hmm. as much as they are above the, the surface. Yeah. Those are apple and oranges, oranges questions, but I'll answer both of them. 
The first one is Nick Smith's words echo in my head. I talked to him two or three nights ago and I, and I, and I thanked him for his words. The best place to start sail fishing is where you see one. Sailfish are very visible. Jumping out, jumping out of the Free water. jumping. Sails out of the water. Hook, yeah, boat hooks up. You know, there's a lot of things that can lead to you seeing one. Not to say that's what you, you drive around till you see one. But the point is, don't ignore it when you see one. Right. And know that they are, they they congregate. It's much like tarpon and home assassin. So there's they're a reason they're there. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think 15 is the most I've seen in one bunch tailing down sea. So they are communal. You know, they kind of get together and they like to be around other sailfish not to say that always happens but the point is don't ignore it when you see it and of course there's the obvious color change uh in here in miami we have a lot of areas where there's shipwrecks we have ledges we have natural humps all those things are a good place to check because they hold bait yeah but i'm going to tell you usually it's more water color and a, and a temperature break and it goes back to food how about t- current line yeah, current line, yeah. all that kind of lines up with the color change. Okay, but say you're fishing for an hour and mm-hmm. there's no bites, or two hours and there's no mm-hmm. bites. Are you moving? The the best friend in that case is a cell phone. So you guys you guys Network. trade information. Oh yeah, you got to give good information to get good information. But right, you know, honest answers to your friends will usually result in that. And you know, is that available in in tournaments? Yeah, still. Oh yeah. Because yeah. in flats tournaments, you can't speak to anybody else. Wow. I mean, I, I there would be some benefit to that because then it would really be a test of your individual skills or as a team, your team's individual skills. But in the sailfish world, they don't. They don't. I, I do know a couple teams that the owner of the boat pro- prohibits or the captain prohibits communication. But then what happens is you cut yourself off from outside information. So this is what I've said to Pete, Peter and Kit before. Yeah, okay, this tournament, I made a call. Someone called me and 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 yeah, I told them what where we were and they came over here and they beat us. You know, it does happen that right. way. But don't forget the times. They can do it to you or well, help I, you. Well, we did it the other way. Yeah. Someone gave me information. So that's kind of how it works at least in my world is it, you know, the ball bounces both ways and you just got to you just got to be appreciative when you when you, when it works your way. Mm-hmm. But I'm a I'm a fan of friends. I'm not a fan of enemies. So right. I try to just do the right thing and talk. You know, I'm not I'm not saying, you know, I've never bumped heads with anybody, but I try hard to always do the right thing and mm-hmm. tell the truth. Right. You know, I tell my kids, that's my famous line, the truth always comes out in the end, so I always tell the truth. And when you're in a tournament, when you catch a fish, don't you, do you have to call in to the waymaster, whoever the tournament mm-hmm. coordinator is, and tell yeah. them your location? Uh, not location. Not location. California. Okay. In California, you see that on TV. They have a grid system, and they have to, I've seen that multiple times. But here, it's just call in the angler, the boat number, and fish. You're Don't you hate that over the radio? Somebody you hear them say, "All right, this is so and so. We got five on." Yeah, <laughs> that can be painful. But do you ever move positions, or knowing that you know where that boat is fishing? Oh yeah, constantly. Yesterday, I ran back and forth fifteen miles chasing some condition reports and you know honestly yesterday i hate to say it it hurt me because i was sitting somewhere that i liked it lines in and a very good friend of mine called me and he told me the truth and i ran 15 miles but i call it showing up for the funeral by the time i got there it was pretty much over and then i ended up running back and when i got there we caught two right away and wished i had two more three more hours you know my point is you think getting that information is just a home run and you're gonna 
you know, prosper because of it. It it does work the other way. So that's part of the the thought process too. Is is it worth it? Mm-hmm. Is it that much better? So when when Charmaine and I fish together, sometimes she'd be down below and she's very competitive. She'd go inside the cabin where nobody could hear her, and she'd call me on the cell phone because she knew I had my phone on. She'd be like, "What are we doing here?" I go, "Well, <laughs> I think it's a good spot." She said, <laughs> "Your daughter?" She said, no, Char- Charmaine. I'm sorry, <coughs> your wife, Charmaine. Yeah, Mickey she was one of the crew. Me. Yeah, she's in the back. Turns out. Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, I got kind of some of those calls. Oh, that's so funny. And then I would have to explain to her why this other area sounds so good, but I would say there's 10 boats there. So I got to be here alone. Yeah, we're here alone and mm-hmm. I got a better shot maybe, you know, and it and sometimes she was right, sometimes I was right, but the point is it was funny. I'd get that when the phone ring and I'd look down, I'd see it was her. I'd be like, "Oh god, here I, it's like the principal's calling you. Why, <laughs> what did you do and why did you hear do about it? this when we yeah, get home?" Right. <laughs> But anyways, but um, second, you asked about the sonar. That's a very, very hot topic lately. So these boats are putting that side scan sonar for Blue Marlin. And I had the privilege of fishing with John Legrone, James, his son, and Andy uh, Moyes and the owners of the Ohana. And, and we fished walkers. And my first real introduction to it. And we absolutely marked the fish before we caught them. And even had one time I was on, John was kind of giving me a crash course. And I said, John looks like two, two marks here. And we went around, mark them again. You put little marks on the screen and it, it stays locked on that GPS position. And we went around, marked them again. They're go, they're going this way. We ran around the third time two blue Marlin came up. Game changer. Steve Lassley is the ultimate proof of that. He's the one that really introduced it in California. He was a swordfish harpooner for, you know, well over a decade, very tuned into the commercial equipment. And he brought the sonar to the sport fishing world and they won $3.9 million in the Bisbee's marking fish and staying with the fish and rebaiting and rebaiting and rebaiting. And they won first and second daily and the whole tournament won $3.9 million. That's what sparked the, how did he do that conversation? It's interesting because when you mark them, on the side scan, you would think that they would turn right away and hear the motor and see the spread and come up. You wouldn't no. think you'd have to do three laps. There's uh, there's a benchmark of about 200 feet, 150 to 200 feet, that if they're below that many times, they won't come up. Or it might take a few passes to get them come up. But when they're up above that 150, that seems to be a, you know kind of the golden mark. And even then, they don't always show. I got to fish with John Duffy on the Bill Fisher uh, last fall, right before the White Marlin Open, and uh, he was nice enough to let me bring Dakota, my son, and he caught his first tuna and White Marlin. And I was just on the bridge with Duffy, watched him work through the sonar, and sh- just shocking how good he was at that. You know, hey, get ready, come down the right side. Uh, uh, but, you know, wow. I think we only caught one White Marlin that he didn't mark that day. I think we caught three whites, I don't know, a dozen, 15 tunas. Yellowfin's like 50, 80 pounds and had a blue marlin. All of that got marked before the bite, except one white marlin. I mean, what so a game if you don't if you don't have that, uh, those, those electronics, you're, therein you're lies, out of the game. Therein, therein lies the hot topic. So when I fished the Big Rock tournament the last few years, on the entry form, they ask you if you have it. And what they're doing is researching correlation between winners and losers and, you know, and what, so what's happening now, some tournaments are actually having a non-sonar division. I was just gonna ask, yeah. it's, at what point yeah. Do you lose your your guiding angling skills to the electronic? I think world? it's I think it's unstoppable. 
you know, you're not going to ban. I told I told you earlier. It's almost about, like fishing with drones in the on the flats. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at what point is 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 something too much? And that's unethical. The big yeah, and the problem is, I don't think you can put the genie back in the bottle on sonar. It's a hundred fifty thousand plus dollar deal. A lot of people who invested, you're not putting it back. But you got a fifteen million dollar boat. So a couple of years ago, I was fishing with Curly on the real uh, on the uh, um, Real addiction. I couldn't remember the name. So uh, she's my historian, and uh, <laughs> and we won a daily. Caught three blue marlin a day with no sonar amongst all the U.S. boats with sonar. And I felt like I told Curly, Holy. I go, I feel like we won the tournament, even if we don't see another fish. You did it. He's an he's an amazing fisherman. But yeah. I, I've always wondered in fly, in the fly fishing world with tarpon, mm -hmm. my drag over the last almost forty years has been three or four pounds. Mm -hmm. Two, probably. Maybe two. So all those fish I've caught has been line drag hanging on the fly line. Sure. When you're fishing, because you don't want a heavy drag on, on your tippet, because when that fish jumps out of the water, it's going gonna, it's gonna to break your line. Yep. Um, how much thumb pressure do you have on the spool, you know, trying to increase the drag when the fish is not jumping or, or pulling line? Mm -hmm. And you put that thumb pressure adding adding line drag or drag uh, mm -hmm. when you lift. Is mm -hmm. that is that really important in your game? I think it's the most single most important aspect of angling that gets talked about the very least. It's probably the biggest part of success. Everything from heavy tackle, you know, to even light tackle. You finger pressure at the pr proper time is the difference in rolling that fish around. When you when you're fighting a fish, what you really want to do is visualize what is the orientation of that fish. Fish is running. He's going away from me. Slows down. His angle probably changed. So now instead of going away from you, he may be still swimming at the same speed, but now he's swimming. If he swims sideways to you, he's not going to pull any drag, very little. And so now's your opportunity when he slows down to hold that spool, obviously not four fingers at once, but, you know, one finger, two fingers, you know, test the fish. That's what I would call it. I'd say test them. A lot of the anglers I fished with for a long time. And and whether you're pinching, in our world, you can, you know, conventional reel. You pinch the line the against thumb. them. Right. Pen, yeah. pen now makes a lot of rods with a flat spot. You know, we've talked about it a lot. And I don't know, you know, who all they listen to, but that flat spot's what we live with for, just say, a charter angler. It's not, it's a very simple way to apply that extra couple pounds of pressure. And not on the spool. Not, but but the guys that are very experienced will lay their fingers, you know, when they're not cranking with the right hand, they, they might pinch and put, you know, one, two, three fingers on the spool as they're lifting. And what you've done now is if, let's just use the number, four pounds of pressure stalled that fish out where he was going this way, he's getting tired. Now he's kind of swimming, but he's not able to pull line off the reel, but he's maybe just basically swimming in a radius well now you put that finger pressure and what happened to his head it slowly rolled towards you so now that phase of pulling should happen slowly quick drop one now two, you can crank. be really aggressive and now get so the key is think about this is the really important part when you drop to wind if you take your time dropping down what did he just do you cannot take your time no quick that's as what, you can go th that's why you know we use really big as big a fly reels yep. as hardy can make yeah so you can crank and a lot of people think the large reel is for chasing fish. I leverage. think it's I think it's for fighting fish. Yeah. 
because yeah. you can hold that fish yeah. fish's head high in the water yeah. and you can crank down and still hold his head because yeah. once they get their head yeah it's their your toast yeah nick smith and i caught his i was with him when he caught his first blue marlin on fly in venezuela and i was one of the teaser guys and that was a con we stayed in the same hotel room you know just shared a room and at night the first day we broke a fish broke a tippet and you know had a few problems and he was just really just and he is a, another peter wright you know just very intelligent very analytical and uh uh he's you know man he he had quite a bit of drag in my opinion he had quite a bit of drag on the reel on strike and i said just go down lighter you know you got a direct drive reel you want the drag you can crank the handle it's and you can hold the spool in other words you don't have to you you, you want you want to make sure that you don't break that fish off in a run because it goes back to peter wright's comment commentary on line drag and so i'm always a fan of lighter drag i a lot of people get on my boat and they check my drags on sailfish and they're like this is There's not much there. it's because of what you're talking about yeah. i'm a mm -hmm. big fan of applying pressure at the right time when he wants to run if your drag's light 99 percent of the time you'll never break a line right and, and anyways that's kind of our deal well, a lot of people don't realize that a fish in the water if it's not swimming is only 10 percent of its body weight right and when he jumps out of the water he's a hundred percent so when you have a hundred pound tarpon landing you know jumping out of the water he's now a hundred mm -hmm. and if you have a, have a heavy drag mm -hmm. that 16 pound test is 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 going to blow yeah yeah and yeah, I was just wondering yeah. because you preset your drags, and that's what I was wondering about. You yeah. know, pressure on those. I think we do it fish. the same way. Yeah, light, light mm -hmm. to fight, and heavy on the fingers. Right. Yeah. Uh, tell me about um, about Nick. Isn't he, isn't he caught like he's a big fly guy, right? For billfish. Yeah, his numbers are insane. Yeah, he's he's another Peter Wright. You know, he's another one that I don't know that anybody will. I don't know. I may, I may be wrong, but I don't think anybody will match what he's done in his life. I was building my first boat in 99. I'd, I'd worked for the Bob Lewis's mm -hmm. boss, the Kelly Tractor Group in 79 and 99. Now I'm building my boat. I'm, I'm, I'm single. I have a daughter. That's how the name of the boat came around. And, and here comes Nick because he had heard what's happened. Now I'm, I'm divorced and trying to make a go of it. And, uh, and, he, and he unexpectedly said, hey, you want to fish some tournaments together? Because now I'm not working for a private boat anymore. We can charter. I'm like, you know, sounds great. I think I'd like to do that. And that began one of the most unbelievably educational and fun, three, you know, fish together a few years that just I'll never forget. And uh, he would do things that I've never seen a human do. I don't think anybody, I don't know anybody can do it. I, we missed a sailfish one time twice which he never did we I got, I got picked off on one and and just missed one like i don't know why just maybe dog boned it and nick wound in the bait you know hook pulled out of the bait whatever he was furious and it was southeast wind north current the fish are swimming against the current going south we had kites over the weed line a little color change there and i knew that if we could get a little jump on them i could get ahead of them and we get another shot at them because neither fish jumped they were probably gonna bite again. So I said, you know, Robbie and Alex were my mates. I'm like, hey, we're gonna make a jump here. You know, so everybody's, and I start motoring. I'm doing about 12 knots. I don't wanna spook the fish. I'm not gonna, I'm just cruising fast trolling speed up the, the line. The fish are probably swimming three or four miles an hour. I'm gonna get ahead of them. Next thing you know, I see a bait fly west. I'm going south. <laughs> I'm like, what in the world? You know, 
I gotta get to, I gotta get to that spot right up there. And all of a sudden, I look back and I see Nick, and he's, he's grabbing the line with his left hand, for like one second. He's letting line go. One second with his fly rod. No spinner or spinner rod. One second. What he's doing is he's testing for resistance, at twelve knots, and all of a sudden he goes, "I think I got picked up." <laughs> Now, I'm not where I want to be. I'm kind of mad. I'm like, what? He's probably seaweed on his bait. You know, he felt something, but pull it back, close the bail. Got him <laughs> on. I got goosebumps. <laughs> That's wow. Well, you know what? You, you have been so successful in your term uh, career. What made you so consistent for so long? Hmm. What were so, you doing differently with from anybody else? And you said there's no secrets. Well, so I had a couple really, really good, you know, hate hate to go back that far, but my grandfather and my father, you know, they teach you fundamental. That's why I say when a mate gets on the boat, most of what you need to know, I, I can't teach you. It's, you know, all the good things it takes to be a good person and, you know, work ethic and all that's all your parents, right? So my dad and grandfather got, you know, I think it was that plumber attitude. My grandfather, you know, was a hard, hard worker. And it was just that never give up attitude. And that's all any analysis of a sport is, is never giving up and, and never stop trying to think of a better way. And I worked behind a house for the Kelly Tractor family from 79 to 99. So I was in a vacuum and I was young. I was 18 when I started running the boat. And, you know, most of it was just trial and error. So I think that trial and error part you know, like I said, when it came to taking care of bait, what I know is because I killed a lot of bait. You know? <laughs> I made a lot of mistakes. Right. And then, of course, fishing with Bill Harrison. He was an analytical. Bob Lewis, super analytical. And then uh, the crews. I don't want to never want to fail to recognize their sacrifices and their right. hard work and executing all the crazy things I'd ask them to do in experimental phases. And, you know, they did it and Ed Cattell and I were together for 10 years while we worked for the Kellys and, and uh, you know, Fritz Herman, all these guys were just so patient and so hardworking and that's how you build knowledge. And it's not, there's really no, you know, there's, there's really a minimal amount that I take credit for. I say that a lot of, and you know, the funny part is a lot of times those younger mates would come to you with questions. Why do we do it this way? Why, what if we did it that way? And I, I swear to you, many of the things that I've felt became an advantage for me came from suggestions. Interesting. And so you got to be open-minded right. and never be that fist-pounding captain that says, this is my way. way. Yeah. yeah, you can't do that. And, yeah. and every single person on your team, anglers, everybody, are all smart people. That's what I tell my young mates today. Everybody who steps on this boat, for the most part, is an intelligent, hardworking person, or they're not here, right? They're yeah. chartering your boat. You know, that didn't fall out of the sky. They had to work for whatever it took to get them on this boat. And you got to always take that position with people and realize that they might have something to offer that you've never thought about. So always keep your mind open. I think that's that and, you know, just being kind of dumb and tough. That's what you got to do. Have that will to win. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's been uh, a real treat to hear your stories and people Thanks. that you've uh, learned from around the world. And, uh, you know, keep up the great stuff and congratulations with your captain and crew hall of fame induction. Thank you. That's great, great to meet you, man. Yeah, man. Thank you. Thanks so much. Really, really wonderful. Thank you. Pleasure. 
For some reason, I'm always fascinated to hear the big blue water stories. And perhaps it's because I'm not an avid offshore guy. But I am often captivated to learn about the history and the techniques used to catch these pelagic fish. Ray, thanks a lot, pal. If you enjoy this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon.